more than anything, I hope that my influence impacts people's lives in reminding them that they're already whole, they're already complete, they're already perfect, that their heart and soul is crying out for expression through their dreams, that there is deep greatness within them, and that they're here to fulfill that, to bring the disenfranchised parts of their soul back so they can do that for others. That's it. Dove Barron is a master storyteller. He's been speaking internationally for over 30 years and has become a major influencer for next-gen leadership. He's been cited twice as one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers to hire. He's had the honor of presenting for the World Business Conference in Tehran, as well as speaking for the State Department and the United Nations on leadership. He's a founder of Full Monty Leadership and the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership. Dove is a best-selling author of several books, on leadership and performance. His latest book is called Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. He's the host of the national TV show Pursuing Deep Greatness with Dove Barron on Roku TV. His podcast, Dove Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Show, is ranked as one of the number one podcasts for Fortune 500 listeners globally. Dove is a featured writer and speaker for such organizations as CNN, CBS, Yahoo Finance, Boston Globe, USA Today, CEO, Entrepreneur, and many more. And this interview, man, it was so dynamic and authentic. Dove isn't afraid to go deep and be vulnerable. And I think that's part of what makes him such an influencer and such a great leader. He's a fierce warrior with a deep love for humanity. And that permeates everything that he does. Dove is a true leader and philosopher with a profound wisdom. I'm honored to call him my friend. And at the end of this podcast, Dove and I share... Uh, some beautiful personal moments where we recognize the light in each other. It was kind of a first for this podcast. It was a beautiful moment. I think you'll enjoy this talk as we discuss lifestyle, leadership, altruism, dreams, consciousness, rock climbing, and all kinds of other things. Enjoy. This is a space for authentic conversations around indigenous wisdom, spiritual growth, and social consciousness as we forge a path towards a more peaceful and harmonious world. I'm Jared Angaza, and this is Inipi Radio. Dove, thanks for being on the show. My absolute pleasure. I'm excited to be here and excited to share and excited to serve. 
Excellent. Thank you, man. I, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and other podcasts, friends of ours, like Josh Spodek that you've been on. Yep. And uh, <laughs> I love your style and the, your just raw authenticity and, and the embracing of your uniqueness and all of your discussions about leadership. And in looking through all of the stuff that you've put together, it resonates uh, so much with me because I can tell the heart, you have this big heart <laughs> that's so um, it's so apparent in everything that you do and everything that you say. It's I can if I take out little blocks everywhere across. If I take, if it's a book, if it's a post, if it's a podcast or whatever, and I see that pervasive uh, sort of heart line across everything of, of being consistent with that. And I really appreciate that. And that's that's why you're on my show today. So. Well, I really want you to know that I sincerely appreciate you even recognizing that because it's interesting. And I'll tell you why, Jared, because it's easy to look at me and think and even hear the, the depth of my voice and go, you know, he's a tough guy. Um, and because I look like I could smash your face in or that somebody <laughs> smashed my face in. Um, but, you know, that is that is the yang of who I am. Right. But the yin of who I am is heart, is soul, is compassion, is those depths of the things. And that's what, what fuels and drives me. You know, as I said to somebody recently, um, I haven't um, – no, that's not true. I think there's one. Uh, one episode of This Is Us that I haven't cried at. I've cried at every episode. And so, if the, you know, that, I don't think macho men do that. So I, <laughs> the, the, the perception of me is different than the reality of who I am. Yeah. So I appreciate you recognizing the heart because – that is what it's about for me. That is also another thing that resonates with me personally because I have this, you know, I'm a freedom fighter activist in Africa on the ground and whatever. I was a tough guy, let's just say, and, and, sure. and doing the, I was MMA fighter before that and so on. Right. And it was not too long ago, somebody had me on an interview and they later then introduced me as a bearded Zen warrior. <laughs> and I that's thought, you, you know what? I'll, like that. I will take that. <laughs> exactly. That's not a bad one. Because <laughs> I, I have this warrior side, but then also, you know, I, I am very deliberate. I think the warrior is innate within me and, and I can see that in, in you as well. Uh, but then it's been a very deliberate effort, not a fight or battle, but a, a, well, maybe sometimes, but a deliberate effort to, to be a man of peace and to bring light into a room and to bring light out of other people. You know, the Marianne Williamson quote, where she said, talks about, you know, how we, when we're, when we let our light shine, we inadvertently uh, let other people or liberate other people to let their light shine as well. And that's what I want to be. And that being a warrior type mentality, you know, and, and being a leader and, having that tendency to be the guy in the room that is kind of the dominant one that's taking the conversation. I'm, I'm not there to dominate, but I'm, I'm there no. to, um, to, to lead for sure. And I think there's a, there's a difference between leading and, and dominating. Actually, why don't I hand that over to you? Because I, I think that's, well, I, that's an area I, I hear you speak point. about quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. There's a great deal of difference between dominating and leading. Um, there's no difference if we go back in time 30 years. Hmm. There was, you know, perceptually the same thing. If I had a leadership role, then then I guess I'm also going to dominate. But right. a great leader today is also a great follower. And a great leader is in service of. 
So these are all very important pieces to understand what leadership actually is. However, as a leader, I mean, one of the things that I like to be very clear about is that leadership is not a title, it's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's where I come from and who I am. Yeah. And that lifestyle is based on that I am purpose-driven to have impact through relationships. So I've got to be good at relationships. I've got to know how to do relationships in a healthy way with healthy boundaries. You can't have healthy boundaries if you're not a warrior because people will just wipe their feet on your ass and where you've ta- you might as well just tattoo welcome across your ass because people are just going to wipe their feet on you. Yeah. That's different than being a warrior for that and saying, no, this is healthy. This I will I will not negotiate on this. Yeah. I will st- I, I am the champion. I am the warrior for your soul. My clients will often use that language that I'm the champion for their soul, hmm. not for their ego. I will battle their ego. I'm a warrior against their ego. Right. And I've got an ego too. We've all got one. But leadership means that you know what it is you're willing to fight for. You've got to know what hill you're willing to die on. And this is what warrior is in the spiritual, soulful, true leadership sense. Yeah. I mean, I think about, obviously – I'm a I'm a dude, so I loved Braveheart, right? <laughs> it's just it's part of part of the deal. But um, <laughs> I, I uh, man, I I really really loved that film. But I I remember that you know seeing that servant kind of leadership with with William Wallace, you know, and and, cool. and looking at that, I remember having tears just rolling down my eyes, thinking, oh my god, that's a leader, that's somebody yes. that I aspire to be. That you know, strong and, and and powerful and and completely guided by his love for the people, uh, not for his his lust over domination or or um, or some sort of uh, superiority over anyone. Uh, but I I find myself going back to some of the scenes in my head uh, sometimes when I'm in leadership positions or when I'm teaching a group or whatever, and kind of remembering to come back and. Not, not just humble myself necessarily, but just to kind of realign myself and say, remember why you're here, bro. Remember why you're here. This is, this is not just to sit up here and tell everybody what you know, but this is to connect with people. It's about relationships. You think about that, you know, William Wallace role, about the relationships were key to ev- everything was about the relationships. And I think so often we, we talk about leadership, relationship hard, hardly even comes to discussion. Well, I think because of the old model, we have leadership as an isolated position. Mm. If you are a leader, you you know, it's lonely at the top is is a very common language. Right. What we need to understand is that we need to make it not lonely at the top. We need to make it collaborative at the top. Mm. You know, I I had a meeting, not last week, the week before, that I called um, with my, quote, personal advisory board. Mm-hmm. These are a bunch of people that I put together who I said, I need a little bit of guidance. Would you guys be willing to give me an hour and a half of your time? They gave me two hours of their time. We all met online. You know, uh, only one of them lives in this city, the same city as me. They all came together, and every one of them were like, wow, I can't believe you had this person in the room. And each one of them was saying that about each other. Hmm. And every one of them held each other in esteem and every one of them was fully willing to go, as I term it, full Monty, rip it all off, bear everything and say, listen, this is where I struggle and I get where you where you want help. Mm-hmm. And this is what we don't get is that this nonsense about being the self-made is just 
horseshit. It's not real. Yeah. We are all collaborative, relational beings, and you can still be a leader. You can still be a champion, and you can still collaborate and be deeply relational. For me, leadership is relational first. I have to be purpose-driven. I have to know my own purpose, and I have to be willing. I have to be willing to step into to really step into my purpose in order to have the impact. So if I don't have the relationship first, I don't even have the foundation. Absolutely. Well, I know you are very, uh, you, you talk a lot about authenticity and you, in, mm-hmm. you embracing your uniqueness. And I know you have a very unique story as well. Um, I, I, I had spoken to you earlier about the fact that I was on this Art of Authenticity uh, uh, podcast with Laura Coe, good friend of mine. And she asked me at one point, you know, what, what does being authentic mean to you? What does an authentic life mean to you? Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the spot and, and, I, and I thought just for a second and I, and I said, you know, I, I think for me it's, be, it's about being patient to some, I mean, not, not the whole thing, but I think a big element is about being patient because if I have the, the if I train my mind to be patient, meaning when you, you and I, if you and I are having a discussion and I immediately start to come back, you know, especially if it's an argument and I start to come back at you, if I tap the brakes, mm-hmm. I hold on for just a second, find my breath. We'll, we'll get to that discussion later too, but find my breath. I feel like I can tap into my highest self and yeah. I feel like there's a discussion. So, so that was, you know, Laura and I talked about that and I really appreciated that conversation. I've gone back to it a few times. Um, but I, I think there's another part of that, too, that sometimes I feel like people think that being authentic is just about kind of going out and, and do whatever, no holds barred, say whatever you want, do whatever you want to do, be your own person. Whatever. And, and I feel like that's sort of a misinterpretation of authenticity. For me, it's much more about, it's almost aspirational. It's, it's looking at this higher self of me and saying, this is who I want to be, not yeah. like the vocation and things like that, but character wise, this is who I want to be. Um, so for me, uh, authenticity has a lot to do with being patient enough to tap into that and to be mindful of what that is and to always be connecting with that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a really beautiful definition of it. Oh, thanks. I've certainly not heard that definition of it. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that when people say, authenticity, they forget that authenticity, true authenticity requires self-knowledge and emotional intelligence. So what they say is, I'm authentic, I'm an asshole, but at least I know that about myself and I'm authentic about it. No, you're an asshole who is emotionally immature, who's not got any self-knowledge. That's not authentic. So in order to really be authentic, Number one is we have to be a, a, we have to have self knowledge, and self knowledge is never there. We're always aspiring to. So, like you were just saying, I'm aspiring to a greater sense of myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, being authentic means I must be purpose driven. Yeah. But my purpose is deepening. It's always deepening. So what I I know my purpose has not changed since the day I was born. I'm certain of that. But my understanding of it has has deepened considerably. So if I was to describe my purpose, the thread would be the same when I was seven as it is when I'm 60. However, 
the the understanding of it, the depth of it, the explanation of it, and of course the use of it is vastly changed. But yeah. the thread is identical. And so to be authentic is to always be willing to, as you said, tap the brakes and come back to, well, what is that thread in this moment? What is it that it brings me back to in this moment? Yeah. Why am I actually here in this moment with this person, in this conversation, in this experience? And how, and this is difficult, how do I push my ego to the side yeah. and be present with that? Because saying I'm authentic and I'm an asshole is actually saying I am identified fully with my ego. And I recognize my ego. It's never going away. I'm not going to try and kill it. Mm -hmm. It's always there. But I need to sometimes drag it out of the driver's seat and occasionally lock it in the trunk so it gets a bit more muffled. <laughs> because it's okay even in the back seat. But yeah. sometimes it's so screaming so loud that i got to shove it in the trunk yeah. for a while. Yeah, it's part of us. <laughs> it's there for a reason. Everything belongs, but yeah, sometimes I need to sit in a trunk. <laughs> and agree. it's an important part of us. This is the other thing. This is the the woo bullshit side of spirituality. You know, oh, you know, you know, I I don't have an ego. Then you're full of shit. Mm. You got skin. You got an ego, and you can't kill your ego. It ain't dying. It isn't going anywhere. You need it because here's my belief. It's not the truth. It's my belief. My belief is that you come here for an experience. You come to this planet for experiences yeah. or an experience. And so if you didn't have an ego, you'd go, huh, bus, interesting. Wonder what happens when I walk out in front of it. Boom, you're dead. Experiences yeah. are over. Ego says, no, no, let's have more experiences. Let's keep you alive. So the ego is there to help you survive so you can have more experiences. The problem is that it runs everything as, as a threat. And so everything is seen as that bus that could take you out, including the fact that your girlfriend doesn't want to do this and you do. The fact that your wife wants you to put down the toilet seat and you don't. Right. You know, all that's a big threat too. So hold on a second. It's trying to keep you alive. You're not going to get rid of it, but you have to monitor it and check whether it's a genuine threat because yeah. it's probably not. No saber-toothed tigers jumping out behind the 96 bus to take you out. <laughs> right. Even though we're well-programmed for that. <laughs> still. Yeah. The, the brainstem is still there. The amygdala still, still works. Yep. That part of our brain is not going away and it doesn't need to. We need to tap into it and use it rather than have it use us. Absolutely. Well, hey, I, I, you've traveled a lot. Uh, and you're, you're originally from the UK and you left when you were 21, right? I left when I was 21 years old, yeah. And then to where? So I went, uh, first steps were France and Italy, briefly, um, which was really sort of driving around four guys in a, in a car, hanging dirty laundry off the car. Uh, <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> of course, yep. right? Oh, yeah. Slept on beaches, slept at side of railway lines, did all those kinds of things. And it was a wonderful, horrific experience. <laughs> what, what I mean by that is it was terrible at the time. Yeah. Looking back, it was romantically fabulous. Well, now you've got uh, great stories to tell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fencing with French loaves and can't afford bottles of water, so drink wine. It's cheaper. Uh, all those kinds of things. Uh, um, and then and I was in uh, New Brunswick, Canada for one year. I lived there for a year. Um, from there, I... Uh, Landed in Australia, and then I was in France and Italy. Uh, no, then I was in um, Asia and Indonesia. Then I was living in Australia for eight years, and then I moved from there to Canada. Okay, and you're in Canada now. What part? Uh, now I'm based in Vancouver, Canada, Vancouver. but of course I 
travel and speak all over the world. Excellent. What did you, what did you, I mean, obviously I, I, for me, world travel and living in other cultures, you know, and it's different when you're just traveling, going somewhere for a week or whatever, but when you sure. live there, when you're living in that culture, um, and especially areas that have robust cultures. And I think you, you know, the places that you've gone that had really robust kind of, uh, dynamics to their culture. How would you say that that world travel has, uh, has influenced your perspective and, and what were some of the pivotal points of culture that affected you that have influenced you? That's a great question. Um, so there's kind of a couple of layers to the answer. Um, the first of it is that I think in, in was probably 89, I was interviewed um, on a radio station in Saskatchewan, and uh, the, the interviewer for, this, uh, for the Canadian Broadcasting asked me, who was your greatest, uh, what was your greatest spiritual teacher? And I said, travel. And they said, oh, really? And I said, yeah. And, um, and, and they said, well, why? You know, was it being in other cultures? And I said, oh, absolutely not. And they said, well, what was it? I said, when I got there, I could be somebody else. And they said, what do you mean by that? I said, the problem with our society is we take who we are and we impose it on the next group. And what I learned being born in a ghetto in the United Kingdom where I felt racism and I felt classism hugely um, because I was a Jewish poor kid who was never going to be good enough to the, to the secular people around me. And I was certainly never going to be good enough to the people in the South who spoke better than I did. So I, you know, I'm very familiar with that world. And I also grew up with a lot of Pakistanis and Indians and Jamaicans and all those different people from all those different cultures and I had no problem with them. But what I noticed was when I would introduce myself to somebody, I would regurgitate my stories that would limit me. And it wasn't until I went to, actually I was in France with my brother and we went out one night, you know, 21 years old, drinking. And we, you know, we're out in the, we're going to the pub and we said, oh, this will be a fun game. Let's pretend we're not us. And he said, okay, well, who do you want to be? And I said, you know, I'll be Bob the plumber. Now I couldn't put two pipes together if you showed me the YouTube videos for 17 months. It's never going to happen. I'm so not a handyman. And my brother said he was going to, and we acted it out. And I went this, and I just, in my brain somewhere, I went, it worked. People believe that. And I thought, that's how con men do it. I got it. That's how con men do it. And then I went, but this isn't about conning. And I thought, so what is true? Is something true because I tell somebody it's true or is it actually true? And so I got this idea that when I land somewhere, I could be whoever I wanted to be. And then I had to challenge myself to step into that. So if I was going to be on a spiritual path, I had to claim I'm on a spiritual path. I couldn't say that. I had to step into it. So again, we're back to that inspirational authenticity, stepping yeah. into a greater sense of self. Man, I, I've never heard anyone respond that way to to that line of questioning. Various time periods throughout the early part of my life I had substance abuse issues. Sure. To put it lightly. And <laughs> I, uh, it started when I was quite young. And, and by the time I was... Uh, 17 or so, I guess I, yeah, I guess I was about 17, almost 18, about ready to leave the house, you know, and go, actually you'll, you'll relate to this. I went off to, uh, Virginia to go rock climbing 
for a six month adventure that turned into three years. <laughs> um, so I, I did that and, and it was wonderful. But prior to that, what had happened is I had gone into a couple of rehab situations. Um, you know, they were minimal. I was a teenager. It wasn't like I was sure. locked up or anything that came later on in life. But I, I did, uh, I did a, a couple of these, uh, programs to kind of get me healed. <laughs> you know how they mm-hmm. do. And, yeah. and then I'd go right back into my same environment. And right back into the same environment. And no matter how hard I tried, I was still that same guy. And I, and I finally, I remember telling my parents this, which seems fairly enlightened now that I think about it for 17 year old or 16 at the time. I, I said, everyone around me has expectations of who I am and it's really hard for me not to fulfill them. Of course. And, and so I left, I went to Virginia and I'm 17 years old, had been in rehab a few times, all kinds of issues or whatever. Now my parents and I were, close. It's not like I had a crappy family situation. I really did not have that excuse. (laughs) Um, but, but I, uh, yeah, I, I realized that if I am here in this environment, I'm always going to be that guy. I'm going to live up to that expectation. And if I'm gone, I could, uh, sort of, uh, I, I could be who I wanted to be because there was no expectation there. So I, I did that. I went there and I did that and experienced that. And then over and over and over and over again throughout my life. And I feel like every time I need like a refresh, I just <laughs> move somewhere else and become more of who I want to be. I remember when I went to, Vir- or not sorry, Virginia, uh, to Rwanda and I, and I did that in probably the biggest transformation I've ever had. No one knew me there. I came in at a, a fairly prestigious level uh, as a country director for a big project that it's still going now. I, I helped create the Rwanda national cycling team. Actually, I came in doing that and I was like, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to be the man that I want to be here. I'm going to, I'm going to change all this because there was no expectation around me. And that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Anyway, it, it's interesting that you have had, that you had that uh, very similar type of experience. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating because I mean, this is one of the greatest challenges with, with, with change work. A lot of the work that I do with leaders. So I have a process um, that, that we do that is a very, quite a profound experience where um, somebody comes in and works with me and they work with me for uh, up to 24 hours straight. Right? So they get to be in a room with me for up to 24 hours straight. And, and then we work together for a year. So, right? so it's it's a it's a very impactful process. And I only select three people a year to work with in that way. Uh, and there's a whole qualification process. But part of the process is that when you've done that first day, you cannot go back to your environment. So mm-hmm. people go, you know, well, I want to call my wife. You can't. What do you mean? When we're finished, you need 48 hours of no connection with anybody you know. They go, well, can I talk to anybody? Oh, yeah, you can talk to anybody you want, as long as you don't know them. Because the minute you are stepping into the, not only the reality, not only the environment, but you're stepping into an energetic field. So personal, emotional, quantum resonance fields. You have an emotional resonance field that you carry with you. Yeah. And people either reinforce it or they don't see it until you until you impact them with it. So if I if 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 somebody says um, they're a criminal, then you're looking at them through those lenses. So yeah. the analogy I like to give is this: I want you to imagine you're at, you're at a um, a social event. You go to a social event. You're a single guy, 
and you go to the social event, you see this really hot lady, and she you know, provided you straight, of course, but you see this hot lady, and she's by the buffet table, and she's got a drink in her hand, and she's screaming hot. And, you know, you just think she's the most attractive thing you've seen in a long time. And you go up to talk to her, and as you go up to talk to her, you know, she's nibbling on a whatever it might be, and, and you start talking to her, and she says to you, within three minutes, she says to you, yeah, I lost 150 pounds. Do you still see her the same? Hmm. Are you now watching what it is she's eating? Are you now seeing how much of the buffet table she's actually putting away? Are you wondering, should I date her because maybe she's going to gain 150 pounds back? She reinstalled her old reality into the present tense, and you projected it into the future. Hmm. You want to be a – when we talk about – this is very cool because when we're talking about authenticity the way that you and I have talked about it here, yeah. it's a projection forward not a projection back. Yeah. So it's so her best answer would be I do 2 hours of exercise a day. Wow, are you an athlete? Yeah, I kind of am. That's it. That's beautiful. Because that's what she's stepping into. Yes. That's the greatness she steps into. Yeah. So often I get into conversations these days where as soon as the conversation starts, I find myself and if it's a good friend I'll just jump in and say this, but um I find myself wanting to say, wait, if this has to do with negative, a negative element of your past or a negative uh, prediction about the future, I don't care. If you want to talk about something beautiful right now, I'll talk about that. Because I, I feel like it's, it's kind of connected to that same scenario. It, it starts to dictate the experience that we're going to have in that moment. It starts to dictate the type of relationship we're going to have moving forward and so on, because we start putting these anchors in psychologically that bring us back to who we were or bring us, uh, or just show our fear about the future. Well, well, coming back to what we said before, listen, the ego's job is to protect you. Yeah. This is, this is one of the things you need to know. The ego's job is to protect you. So what does that mean? It means it has to predict. Mm -hmm. So how can it predict best? By keeping things the same. Mm -hmm. Simple. If it keeps things familiar, the same. Now notice the word familiar. Coming from the Latin familias, yeah. which means on family footing. So in the basis of what it is you've learned. So if we keep things familiar, then it's predictable. If it's predictable, I can keep you safe. However, stepping into something new feels quite threatening. So the, ego's, the ego is constantly going to regurgitate the past as the present, which becomes a projection for the future, not only for us, but for people who are talking to. So they are looking at us going, I wonder when. I was yeah. just interviewed I was just interviewed by ABC, the, the Australian broadcasting company, um, because one of the guys, the guy that I spoke at the UN with, Tony McAleer, is, is the director of Life After Hate. He was a neo-Nazi who I, I helped to de-radicalize. So we spoke at the UN together and it was fascinating to hear how they wanted to push to see if he was actually changed. And I get it. I don't, don't get me wrong. I understand it. But they were like, well, don't you think that it's possible he could go back? And I said, why don't you ask him? And he said, and so they did. And they said, do you ever have those thoughts? And he says, absolutely. Of course I do. No denial. Of course I do. But I don't act on them. And I, and I see them for what they are. I recognize them for what they are, which is a scream for attention. And when I get a scream for attention comes, I go, what's a better way to meet that? 
Go out and be compassionate. Go out and be caring. Go out and be loving. Yeah. Be loving, caring, compassionate with yourself. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating how much we we're all pulled to that. But step into this is the the great thing about stepping out of your comfort zone, stepping into something new, not with oh shit, it's scary. Yes, that's true. That's going to happen. But with I wonder who I'll become in that next moment. I wonder who I want to become in that next moment. Am I stepping in as this? So this is part of the wonderful thing about social media is you can actually create a persona, but don't create a persona that, that is a facade. Create a persona that demands you step into your greatness. And most people don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like you, I, I, I look at yours and I see that you have. I know I follow you on social media. And I, I know that uh, you have deliberately created a, a persona, a character that is who you want to be, who you want to be known as, who you're going to be recognized for and so on. And you're consistent with that. And I think that's exactly how we should be using that kind of scenario with, with social media. Um, there's a, I, I feel like people are so, I, I'm in the, you know, I'm in the behavioral change business as well on the sure. activism side and, and on the, you know, and, and we're looking, you know, when we're creating movements and things like that, how do we change people's minds, you know, on an individual level and then crowds obviously act very differently than individuals and so on. And the most, one of the most pervasive uh, dynamics that I'm dealing with always is, is people's just, I don't know if addiction is the right word, but uh, so, so um, I, driven, I guess, uh, by familiarity. Everything is about familiarity. The further you Absolutely. get them away from familiarity or the more you kind of threaten that familiarity, the, the more people kind of tense up and say, oh, wait, wait, wait. And, and we say, you know, people are, people are reluctant to change. I think really what we're saying there is that people are reluctant to leave familiarity, <laughs> you know, to, to, exactly. to branch out, you know, to step away from the shores, as they say. Uh, and, and it's, we, I think that has become one of the most <laughs> pervasive discussions I've had over the years too, with the, you know, the USAID and, and the uh, state departments and, and UN and things like that, where we're trying to figure out how do we improve civil society, blah, blah, blah. It's always this familiarity thing, always back to that. Yeah. And I think, uh, the, the, the challenge with it at a human psyche level is that even as we swing away from it, we are also likely to swing back to it. We're seeing this in, in American politics. We're certainly seeing it in global politics. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, there's, there's, I'm trying to remember the lady's name um, who spoke recently here at uh, University of British Columbia talking about democracy and how democracy is a very different thing than it once was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and America says, you know, we're, the, we're, we're the, the bastion of democracy. Well, actually, no. Uh, that, that's actually not true. All you have to look at is, is the way the voting system is designed. You have to look at all of those kinds of things. You have to look at the money that flows into politics. That's not democracy. Because um, democracy was based on the Roman idea of a government of the people, for the people, by the people. Mm -hmm. And now what we have is a government of the corporation, for the corporation, by the corporation. That's mm -hmm. a very different model. Yeah. Uh, is it demo is it democracy? It's democracy you can afford. If you can't afford that democracy, you don't have democracy. Yeah, it's that simple. You get to vote with your dollars, and I actually do believe that. I do believe you get to vote with your dollars. So if there's things you don't like, stop spending money on it. Stop backing it in any way you can. 
because people will respond to money. So don't spend your money with that company because they they are taking away the water rights in certain nations or right. well, don't buy this product because they're using child labor or what you know use your dollars to vote. But that's not how it should be at the ballot box, but it is. So we're you know we're still at that same thing as the there is there's there's a swing. Now, will we get the counter swing? Of course we will. But the pullback to the familiar will always be there. And when you look at the pull to the familiar, we have to look at things in context. And what is the context? Well, we had tribes and then we had then we had kings. And king, you know, a king could, you know, might have ruled an area that's smaller than your city today, but it was a king, you know. And so and then you had eventually you had uh, industrialists who ruled by money and power, right? And then you had presidents and politicians and all those kinds of things. And now what you're seeing is you're seeing exactly those same things, but they're now breaking apart and making themselves very obvious. So we, we have to look at this. So are we, are we tribal focused? Yes, absolutely. That's who we are. Are we oligarchy focused or are we universally focused? Can we look at ourselves as being a collective? Can we look at that? And I'm not talking about in some new age, hippy dippy, we all got to love each other shit that nobody really cares about apart from some hippie hugging a tree who's never going to make any money or make any difference. You know, God bless them, or Fred bless them, or Betty bless them, or whatever it is that blesses them. But the bottom line is, can you do something? Are you willing to, to stand, as I talked about before, what is the hill you're willing to die on? What are you willing to stand for? What are you willing to be a champion for? What are you willing to, to be a warrior for? That takes balls. That's the, what we talk about, the yang side. Yeah. That takes the balls and the courage. It's fine that I'm yin. It's fine that I'm heart and soul centered. But I got to know where I need to be a warrior. And too often people are warriors with no soul or they're soulful, but they've got no warrior. Yeah. And we need both. Yeah. And when I hear heard you talk about dreams and and you you said your your dreams are your heart and soul crying out for them to be fulfilled yes i I love that talk to me about that thank you for that quote yeah thank you for that quote (laughs) um talk to me about about that a little bit so thank you for asking that because um i i believe that with all my heart see here's the thing again my belief not the truth I believe that you, I, we were all born whole, complete, and perfect and miraculous. There's nothing missing. Absolutely. So in all of the work that I've done in my career for the last 34 years doing what it is that I do, um, I started out thinking people were somehow defective and I needed to give them something to make them whole. Mm. Um, Many years ago that changed and I got it that no. There's nothing to add. There's only things to take away. And so um, there's a great experience of this is that I was speaking recently, actually, probably within the last few years at a um, a startup school in in Vancouver, Canada. I was invited to speak to these kids. I I was saying to these kids, listen, people are going to tell you who you are. They're going to tell you who you should be. They're going to say, oh, you're good at math. You should go into programming. And you might be good at math and you may want to go into, but maybe that's not your path. Maybe that's not the truth of who you are. As a kid, and I said this, as a kid, I was an artist and my art was in galleries by the time I was 10. So I assumed I was going to be an artist and so did everybody else. But today I don't paint and I don't draw. And so one of the kids said to me, 
don't you miss being an artist? And I said, you know, I don't because if to say I do would be to say that I think about it and think I am, I'm not doing it, but I don't think that. So I guess I don't miss being an artist. And then the end of the presentation came and did Q and A and at the end I, I got it and I called this kid and I said, in front of everybody else, I said, I want to thank you. And they said, what? And they said, that question you asked me about, do I miss being an artist? And I said, no. And they said, oh, for what? And I said, because I'm still an artist. And they said, how? You don't paint, you don't draw, you don't do those things. And I said, no. I said, do you know the story of Michelangelo's David? And they said, no. And they said, D uh, Michelangelo was asked, how did you create such a beautiful form of David from the marble? And, and Michelangelo said, David was always in there. My job was to chip away the rest. Yes. So when I say your dreams, you don't get by accident, they are your heart and soul crying out for you. They're the stuff that's inside that I help to chip away to reveal them. Mm -hmm. And and everything else is all the shit that you got piled on you from society, from parents, from school, from all things. And a lot of it not negatively intentioned, but still confining and restricting and parts of us that, that become disenfranchised. My work is about bringing you home to your soul, reclaiming the disenfranchised parts of yourself so that you can step into your deep greatness. And in your deep greatness, your heart and soul is crying for these dreams to be fulfilled because it makes impact on the world, not because it makes you glorious. That's a side pro That's a side benefit. But what it does is it shifts the world into a higher sense of being. That's fucking leadership. That's what real leadership is. So yes, it's never gone away. You were born with it. It cries out for you. And here's the thing. As I said, it's the thread that has run through everything. Your passion and your purpose are vastly different things. We're on this passion thing. You know, people did the passion. Oh, I gotta go work in this because this is my passion. Bullshit. My passion at 15 was the same as every 15 year old boy. So clearly your passion is not your purpose. Passion is transitory. Yeah. But purpose is, purpose is something deeper. And passion is often the vehicle. This is important for people. Passion is often the vehicle for purpose. But at some point, the vehicle will run out of fuel and you'll need a new vehicle. Yeah. Just have to remember the purpose is the the purpose is the thread that runs through it. Oh, I agree. I, I, I grew up in, you know, Nashville, Music City, USA, and in the music industry. And I, I played guitar. I was in a band. I did band management. I was, uh, you know, I was a producer and, and uh, of concerts and things down on the riverfront. And right. it was so much a part of my life. And it's interesting now. I mean, my wife and I have only been together for 10 years. And so she never saw that part of my life. Uh, she never, right. We never even lived in the United States together until just recently. We've been uh, 12 years out of the country. Um, and so, she, so a lot of times I still have a guitar that, that was at my parents' house, I guess, I left behind when I went to Africa. And um, she said, why don't you play guitar anymore? Why don't you play the ukulele anymore? Why don't you? I used to paint. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Uh, like, don't you miss that stuff? I'm like, well, sort of, but now I, it, it's the exact same purpose, the same passion that drives me. And it comes out different now. It comes out as writing. It comes out as a podcast. Like when I get on the mic doing this podcast, I feel like I'm in my flow state. It's like, like this interaction, this energy back and forth. The only thing would be better is if we were in the same place at the same time, you know, but virtually we'll make that happen. We'll make that happen. Yes. 
Um, Maybe in my case with a sip of tequila. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> that, you can work. have what you want, but I'm going to sip a nice añejo tequila. Uh, excellent. Well, I'll uh, I'll enjoy it through you. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you traveled, you yes. experienced some other cultures. You experienced some. You, I would imagine knowing you had some um, spiritual experiences along the way. And, and and we talk a lot about on the show, you know, the indigenous principles and the what I would, I guess, sort of encapsulate under the wisdom tradition umbrella, if you will, um, and the mystics. Uh, you, you had mentioned that as well. Let's Ooh. let's chat some about that, mostly because it's my favorite thing to talk about ever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing your bias. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, for me, mysticism is is kind of the title of it is is a misnomer. It's a misdirect because uh, it's for me. I split it in two. One part of me is so pissed off in that it becomes this new age fluffy nonsense that people stick a badge on and want to claim. Mm. And they really, you know, I mean, I meet these people. Who say, oh yeah, you know, I, I've I've been on fourteen ayahuasca journeys. I'm like, yeah, you still haven't dealt with any of your shit. You just got new language patterns. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh my God, you know. So they've not really dealt with anything, but they're claiming spirituality, which annoys the crap out of me. This totally my bias. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's nothing wrong with them. It's my shit. I get it. And on the other side of it is, for me, is that when people say to me, you know, are you on a spiritual journey? It's like, how can I say yes? It is who I am. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I don't get it. It's hard for me to to put that in words. So I get kind of frustrated when people claim that they're spiritual because for me it is body, mind, and soul. So it's how I operate in the world. It's who I am. It's that I don't see things that, that other people see and I see things other people don't see. And that is part of my training in psychology. It's certainly part of my training in the mental skills that I have, but it's deeply embedded in my spiritual experiences of traveling, like you said, being with these great spiritual masters, that was why I began to travel, because I wanted to study with spiritual masters, sitting with Pathasaraje, the dean of the Vedanta University in Bombay, and getting these lessons in uh, uh, from the Vedas, which to me were like bizarre, and then realizing later, hold on a second, that was what I studied in Kabbalah, and going oh my God, they're talking about exactly the same thing. And then I started studying Gnostic Christianity and the Tao and going, it's the same thing. So in an interview, I was asked, you know, of all the spiritual studies, of all the religious studies, which one do you think is the the greatest? Of course, the Tao, yeah. Which one do you think is the greatest? And I said, they're all full of shit. And the person's like, I didn't expect you to say that. The religions... Yeah. But the essence, the philosophy of them all is identical and it's magnificent and it's beautiful. Yeah. But the rules that man puts on it is crazy. So when we add me, dogma in on top of that, that, exactly. that layer is the layer that takes it in another yeah, and direction. And so that, yeah. that's what spoils it all for me. You know, so as, as I said to a very good friend of mine who is a Christian minister, I have people from all kinds of walks of life. And I said, I said, you know, some of the best Christians I've met are Buddhists. <laughs> and he went, yeah, no, he's, you know, he's a, he's a knowledgeable guy. And he went, yeah, I can see that. You know, because it, because it's not about the dogma. Right. It was about, you know, I, and I, cause I had asked him years ago to define Christianity <clears throat> and he said, oh, it's simple. 
walking in the path of Christ. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, behave the way that we would see Christ behaving. And I said, cool. And that's how this idea of some of the best Christians are Buddhists. Yeah, I would agree you, with, with that 100%. And, right. and, and, so, and certainly wish that more of that was apparent. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, you know, it's, it's for me... I've had these wonderful cultural experiences of being places. And, and what I love about the culture, and you, you Jerry, will have the, the best at knowledge of this, far better than mine, which is to watch being in a different culture teaches you to see your own bias. And, oh, yeah. and it was interesting for me. Um, the first big awakening for that for me was when I moved to North America at 21 and I was, I was living in Moncton, New Brunswick, and I watched these people eat steak, and I wanted to scream. I was so frustrated. Now, I'm not a vegetarian. Don't think it was always because I was so upset that they were eating an animal. That wasn't it. It was the way they held their knife and fork. They held their – they had to use their knife in the right hand, and, and they had to – carve it up like it was, you know, and then they had to swap over the knife fork. Like, what is wrong with you heathens? Did you not <laughs> learn how to use a knife and fork? I'm British. We know how to do this. Yep. We can be dexterous with knives and forks. But, you know, that was a great lesson in my bias, yeah. my need to be right based on what I had learned. And yeah. that lesson right there, the knife and fork, taught me that when I walk into another culture – don't assume my way is the right way. So when I'm in Asia and I watch people in the Middle East and watch people eat with their hands, I eat with my hands. Yeah. When I'm in Fiji, in, in this grass hut, eating with the locals, I'm eating boiled fish and cassava with some lime juice and chilies uh, on top of it. Yes, it's damn good. Oh, man, my mouth is watering. Because my, <laughs> my wife's Fijian. I, you know, and eating it with your fingers while little – Little tiny cocky, little tiny cockroaches are running around. Eh, okay, no problem. Yeah. If it's a cockroach running around in my house, I'm gonna freak out. But I'm there. Yeah. And get my bias out of the way. And if we can look at people and look at the way they live in that way, then there's an opportunity for us to learn. Yeah. An opportunity for me to say, what is the beauty? What is the gift you're offering me right now that my bias is blocking? That's that's a beautiful beautiful way to look at that. And what what is the gift that I could receive right now because of this experience? I, my I have an adopted son, um, Francois. He's uh, he's twenty four now. But when we moved from Rwanda to Kenya mm-hmm. uh, together, he uh, let's say we we had five years in Kenya together. When we moved there, first of all, he didn't know a lick of English because I had never taught him English because I just I was learning. I learned his local language in Rwanda, Kenya. Right. Uh, so we spoke his village language and <laughs> that didn't serve him very well in Kenya. I, I didn't know we were going to move, <laughs> but um, we went there and I remember so often him looking at people and saying, you know, kind of looking at me and it, it, it'd be like, why, why on earth would they do it this way? And I remember so many times I ultimately just got to the, the one phrase I would come back to and say, well, is it wrong or is it just different? And, and if it's just different, then, you know, is that something that you could learn from? Is it totally benign? It doesn't matter at all. Or what? And, and to look at it as, and I, I wish I'd have had your words back there too, to say, what, what gift could this be bringing me? Ultimately, I think that's what I was trying to get at. And, sure. and he, 
uh, over the first like six months, he, he really struggled in Mombasa, but then he ultimately began to, to kind of get in the rhythm of that and constantly look at, and then the next thing I know, I mean, he's doing it or he's eating this way, or he's hanging out with the locals doing that thing that he used to think was weird. And it, it, it just, it broadened his perspective and, uh, sort of enhanced his life, I, I guess, to such a degree. Uh, and I know that I've done that in my life too, but it's different when you see it in your kid, you know, and you see them going through that transition as well. Absolutely. And, you know, one of my quotes is that leadership is not binary. Hmm. So I want to explain that for a moment. So first of all, again, in context, I'm not talking about leadership as in being a CEO. I'm talking about leading first to yourself. Hmm. Leadership is not binary. And we tend to look at the world in a binary way, right, wrong, left, right, good, bad. But, But that's not actually how the world works. That's how, uh, that's how ISIS look at people. That's how Mm. the Christian crusaders looked at people. You know, any bad example you want exists in a binary world rather than in an expansive world Mm -hmm. where I say, what can I learn? What is the growth? What is the gift here? Um, and, and I think that that is the great lesson for, that all of us can take is that leadership is not binary. Anything you see as black or white isn't. And the, mm-hmm. the, the, one of my favorite movies, I have, I'm a movie buff. I love movies. Me too. We should one talk my, about that sometime. <laughs> sure. One of my favorite movies, uh, Syriana. Syriana, yes. Syriana. And I love Syriana. People are like, why do you like that movie so much? Because it's not binary. So mm-hmm. you've got, You've got a, a terrorist who's, who's going to be a suicide bomber. Binary, this is a radical who believes in Islam and will kill innocent people in the process. Not true. Watch the movie and you see, no, this is a guy from Pakistan who had no money, who went to work in the Middle East, got brought into this thing because they promised him that his family would get esteem and it would pay for his family, which he couldn't afford to do. He was a suicide bomber to pay for groceries. Yeah. Now, when we go to the local supermarket and we pick up whatever the hell we want, it's pretty easy for us to go, that's ridiculous. But when you don't have food for your family, hold on a second. Mm-hmm. It's not binary. The, 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 in the movie, the Arab prince who runs this oil-wealthy country is trying to go solar, who's trying to go wind power, who's trying to use these natural resources rather than oil, gets bumped off. You know, damn, it's not binary. And I just love that lesson. Anytime you watch it, I, I love movies that challenge and blur the lines yeah. between right and wrong. Where we look at those places and, we, and we're willing to go, what if it's something else? It's not black or white, but what if it's varying shades of gray or a fucking rainbow in between? Did you see the, the film Hustle and Flow? Hustle and Flow. That, who was in it? <laughs> speaking, was of, in it? speaking of uh, rap acts. Um, it, it was uh, Terrence Howard. Uh, I and, did. and it was when he, it was, I think it was. It's hot out it, there for a, print, for a pimp. Yes. My wife and I still sing that song around the house, um, which is hilarious that I'm saying that on this podcast. Uh, but there is a, one of the things that I loved about that film, and I can't remember the guy's name, Bruce something, I think, the, the director, the, the writer, director, producer of that film. And he did um, did another one, uh, Black Stink Moan, and a couple other ones. But his film, 
well, his films generally do this, but with, with Hustle and Flow, what I loved about it, it took a, a, a pimp and his prostitutes and told a story that was so deeply human and so moving. And I mean, I cried multiple times in that film and, and, and I just thought it was, it was such an epically well done film in that he was able to take us to all these different places and emotional rooms in our minds and everything with a story that ordinarily I wouldn't have cared about watching at all. Who cares? Uh, it's, it's not really my cup of tea, but I, I, I was so grateful that I saw I actually ended up seeing it a couple times because I loved what I love films or anything really any media or whatever that that experiences that take me to a place that make me challenge my own cognitive bias exactly. that make that make me say wait a minute again is it wrong or is it just different <laughs> um and and, and also, is it it's circumstantial obviously often of course it is cuz now we're back to we're circling back to the beginning of our conversation which is environment yeah yeah right so in the environment is it normal Mm-hmm. So there's there's a wonderful British series mini series that came out. It's called State, mm-hmm. and it's about four British people, one, two, three, I think three or four British people, who go to Syria to join the Islamic State, to join ISIS, and it is magnificently done because it shows an entirely human side of people who join ISIS, mm. but we dehumanize. Because we see them doing things that are inhumane, and I'm not in any way condoning or, or saying it's okay. But we forget that there are humans in there. Yeah. And these human story inside of there, one woman, she's a black lady, she takes her son and joins with a nine-year-old son. She's a doctor because she wants to help. There's you know another young man whose brother was a hero, was a martyr, and he you know, it's fascinating stories of the humanity. And we've got, this is why I love watching those those kinds of things because it's like get your head out of your ass about where you think it's right and wrong, Dov. You're not. And this greater expanse of that, I'll tell you another movie. Uh, I think it was Dawn, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Caesar, who is the leader, mm-hmm. is the lead ape. And at one point, he comes face to face with his enemy. Mm-hmm. who has done horrible things to the apes, as in, it's man. Right. But this man, he says, no, no, I will not judge this man upon men. Hmm. And he trusts him. He gives him a second chance. And he proves to be worthy. Right. And, you know, we want to look at, this is why when I was asked about Tony and de-radicalizing him from, from Nazi, no, no, no. He's not a neo-Nazi. He's a human being in an environment with needs. He yeah. had needs as a human being. It was in an environment that met the needs. That's it. Put him in a different environment that meets his needs. He'll be something else. All human beings have needs. Put me in an environment that fulfills those needs in a destructive way. That's what I'm going to be. Put me in an environment that, that, that meets those needs in an empowering and a way that embodies beauty and grace and magnificence. That's what I'll be. This is the power of understanding why we must understand our environments. You talked about yourself and drugs and all those kinds of things. When I first started out and I was in Western Australia, I went and volunteered my time with these street kids. And I watched them and we put them through trainings in leadership. I was only 26 years old at the time. Put them through these trainings in leadership. These kids were amazing. They were resourceful. They were entrepreneurial. 
And some of them were like, wow, you can change the world. And within a very short period of time, they were back at the same shit doing the same stuff. Why? Because that, I, all I've done is train them to be better in their environment. You have to put them in a different environment. Yeah. As you said, the expectations are on them. So it's this same thing. We've got to get out of this binary, black and white. Yeah, I think sometimes in those situations, what you've added is guilt. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's like, well, before I was in this environment and it seemed like the thing to do. And now someone's told me I shouldn't and that I should act this way and I act this way. And then I come back to that environment and now I'm acting that way again. And now I just feel guiltier <laughs> or I feel worse about it or more entrenched because of that subconscious guilt and so on and so on. And well, it, I think that you brought up something that I think most people miss is people say, well, he's become even more now. Mm hmm. Because the ego likes the familiar. Mm -hmm. So th there is, you know, we're all familiar with buyer's remorse. And it doesn't so, like get, getting one pulled over on it either, the ego. Because, it, and it feels like that, I think, to some degree when you say, okay, I'm, I'm in a, let's just say, negative situation, street kid scenario, whatever. Mm -hmm. I am, am trained or, or helped by someone and I get over here and I, I'm now in this mindset. And then I'm back in that atmosphere and there's expectations and there's environment and there's needs. I love that you said that the environment with needs, there's all that stuff that happens. And I think the ego sometimes will, will respond sort of violently kind of hitting back off and saying, okay, you know what? I'm digging my heels in. And that's when you get people that go deeper into that after having had some transformational experience. Absolutely. And the, the thing of that is to understand the first rule of investment is okay. never lose your investment. It's the first rule of the ego. If I'm invested in a belief system, sure as hell I'm not going to give it up. I'm invested. Mm -hmm. You see, if I'm 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, whatever age I am, and I've invested in this shitty belief system for all that time, mm -hmm. even if I go, you know what? Oh, my God, I've woken up. Then I have to say I'm a fucking idiot. I'm an idiot for believing this shit. Oh, I am never going to admit that I'm an idiot. So what do I do? I embed. I go deeper into it. Mm -hmm. I now try and prove it. That, there you go. It, it's the trying to, like, okay, I'll show you. <laughs> right. So yeah. that's the thing, right? Yeah. That's, this is what we don't understand. This is, this is the, the understanding, the depth of understanding of psychology of ego is mm -hmm. that it will always double down on the investment. It will always double down, even if it's wrong, mm -hmm. because it has to prove it's right. So, you have to hold on to the investment. So the only way is to make sure that the other person on the other side, this is the work that I do, the other person on the other side can see the investment pays off far greater by going the other way. Right. Not on my faith, not on my belief, not on my say-so, but they have to actually experience that. Yeah. And that is when it shifts, but not a moment until... Absolutely. Okay. So in, in talking about a shift, uh, we talk obviously a lot about consciousness in this, uh, podcast, I think po consciousness, or let's just say becoming conscious it, to, to me, I think, it, 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 word woke? pardon, isn't the new word woke. Well, <laughs> yeah, it is. Maybe I'm too old fashioned. <laughs> well, I, 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 people were talking about woke. I'm like, what are the, Oh, they mean conscious. Okay, I mean, I get it. essentially, yeah, that's, that's the, the millennial version. I'm, I'm a little older than the millennial version or millennial crowd, but yeah, 
Uh, I think that's the new deal. Hey, I'm glad they've got a term they're using. Exactly. <laughs> that's great. Uh, well, when it comes to consciousness, I, I mean, I do think that we all have our own uh, perspective of what that is. And maybe woke has another level. I feel like there is a uh, sort of a, a pervasive understanding that it means to awaken to something. What does it mean for you to become conscious, to awaken to what? Um, so, again, another great question, because you know my story about me falling off the mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I'm asked about that, um, I say that we all have our falls. Some mm -hmm. people, it's divorce, or bankruptcy, a horrible diagnosis, whatever it is. And for our but listeners, by I, the way, you fell 120 feet, right? Yeah, I fell 120 feet, 12 stories, landed on my coconut. Oh my God, man. I, I mean, I, I've, I've taken, you know, 30, 40, 60 foot whippers, you know, off of a free climb and, uh, and, or a sport climb, sorry. And I can imagine a little bit and, oh my man, I, <laughs> yeah. Talk about miracle that you are sitting here talking to me today. Oh yeah. It's no, no way of understanding it beyond the miraculous. Yeah. Okay. So I just um, wanted to give the listeners a little bit of understanding too about what, what sure. you actually went yeah. through. When I talk about it in the context of that we all have our falls, mm -hmm. um, and what I say to people is, what I want you to stop and consider is this. And, and I say, I, I'll talk to my audience and I say, just put your hand up if you think you've had a fall. Like I said, could be a divorce, a bankruptcy, whatever it might be, something that that rocked your world and rocked your identity, because that's what a fall does. It rocks your identity. Right. Right. And you know, almost everybody in the room will put their hand up. And I say, if your hand is not up, it either means you're in denial or look how it's coming. The question is, how big does the fall need to be for you to wake up? Mm -hmm. See, so people hear about my fall, the one you just talked about. But what most people don't know is that was my fourth fall, okay. not my first. Wow. I fell 70 feet off Bluff Knoll while climbing, climbing a shale mountain, dumb thing to do, in Western Australia. Right? Just tumbled all the way down. Yeah. Looked like. Look like tenderized meat at the other side. Oh, man. I fell 16 feet and I fell 25 feet and then I fell eventually 120 feet. This wasn't my first fall. Were you free climbing? Yeah. <laughs> I want to keep my mouth shut on that one. <laughs> you uh, mean it's dumbass? <laughs> well, I, I used oh. to get pissed off at those guys because then somebody would fall and then they'd close down the rocks and we couldn't climb there anymore. I well, I wasn't just free climbing. I was free climbing without even chalk or the right footwear, I was climbing soaking wet. Oh, my god! Because I'd just been behind a waterfall. So I was dumb with a cherry on top. <laughs> All right. Dumb a la mode. Yeah. So, but, the, but what I say to people that I want everybody to get is this. I say, people will often ask me, well, you say it was to wake you up. And I say, no, hold on a second. That's only half the equation. It's to wake you up from something. So... Right. What is, what is your fall? And this, you had your hand up even as you're listening to this. If you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, maybe that was my fall. Okay. What was it there to wake you up from? So that means you were doing something that was unconscious. It was so, eh, you know, just what you do. Mm -hmm. What is it there to wake you up from? But here's the other end of that question. What is it there to wake you up to? to. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's from and to. Mm -hmm. If it's just from, then you go, oh, then your life's dead. It's dead in the water. It's like, okay, I'm no longer that because I can't do that anymore. Okay, 
But what is it waking you up to? Then you've got a journey forward. And if you don't, if you don't connect to that, what it's waking you up to, then that's when you tend to go right back to what it was. Exactly. Before. And that's yeah. why I brought that up. Because that's the point. It's what carries us forward. Mm-hmm. So if we don't know what we're moving into, we move back to what we came from. Exactly. And so for the first 18 months after I fell, when people would say, how you doing? I'd be the ghetto kid who was a leader. I'm great. I'm coming back. There is no, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't exist. That's not how evolution works. There's only forward. There is no back. So what am I, so it wasn't until I got, hold on, what do I need to move into? That was the transformational point. Not the fall. That The fall is the pivotal moment. But the yeah. power exists in the choice moment when everything can return to normal. Beautiful. All right. So it's no, no uh, surprise uh, to anyone that obviously you're, you're an intense fellow and I, I get in, really? <laughs> I, I get that uh, a lot in my life as well. So I, I've, I feel you brother. Um, consequently, I have a lot of practices and things in my life that, that help to cool me out, if you will, get me into that mm-hmm. woo way state. What are you, what are your practices? What are the things that you do to keep you aligned, to keep you woke, if you will? <laughs> No, we're going to be using that word. I know. I even chuckled at myself as I said it. <laughs> sure. Um, I have, I have, I have a, a, a whole variety of different practices that I do at different times. So certainly meditation is part of mine. Mm-hmm. But I have different forms of meditation. So I have prana, which is just breathing meditation, just sitting and breathing. And I'm reading a little bit about Wim Hof right now, and that's kind of interesting style of breathing. So I'm looking yes. at that. As I said, as a kid, I was interested in prana yoga at 10. So that was, you know, so that's been my old practice. So yoga, uh, not yogic breathing, not yoga, but yogic breathing, um, meditation, whether it's uh, visualization or breath or just being present, mm-hmm. you know, but also moving meditation is a very powerful yeah. one for me. Um, for uh, some, again, background, you know, I was a Western boxer and I became a martial artist. I became, I did Charlie Fat and Win Chung. I became that oh. kind of boxer, right? So um, those movements that transformed for me into self version of tai chi it's not tai chi it was just like just practicing my forms right. but slowing them right down right so they became like a tai chi but it were actually my forms that i'd learned in, in chale fat and win chung that were just slowed right down and just allow myself to be fully present i think that's very right. reasonable i appreciate that <laughs> right and so what's interesting is that my training partner and i have developed a training system like i work out weights i've been a bodybuilder since i was 19 but our style of bodybuilding, everybody looks at us. We see people in the gym looking at us and going, you guys are big guys. Why are you lifting 20 pounds? And we're lifting 20-pound dumbbells where I, I can do 80 pounds. But there's no momentum in it. We're doing them super slow. Mm-hmm. Super, super slow. And all the movements are incredibly toe, slow. So it's Tai Chi with weights. Mm-hmm. Right? So that is very centering. And it's just like putting the mind in the muscle. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's there's still the same body mind connection. So th- those are things for me: uh, meditation, moving meditation, writing for me, whether that's in a journal or getting into a flow state, is mm-hmm. you know, with writing an article about something that ends up being three thousand words, and I needed seven, so I've now got to edit it, and it drives me mad, and I hate the editing side of it. But that flow place is very good for me. Um, gardening is my thing. 
I love to garden. I live in an urban area. I love the city, but this, the ocean is literally out of my back door. And I have a garden and, and being in that garden and working with the flowers and getting my hands in the soil is incredibly grounding for me. And I have something that works with my level of energy, which is proclamations. I do proclamations, and part of my proclamations are proclamations of gratitude. So mm. let me just be clear for everybody's thinking. I'm sure you're familiar with affirmations, and for me, affirmations are worth about as much as the hole in the donut. Right? So right. I am rich, I am wealthy, and then you put your hand in your pocket and there's nothing there. Right. Eh, you know, and you're not convincing anybody. Right. But a proclamation involves body, mind, emotion, and the language. Mm-hmm. So it's... I am grateful. I am deeply grateful for all the love and support that I feel in my heart, in my soul, in the center of my being. I lead from my heart, my soul, the center of my being. I lead from my deep, deep greatness because I am here to serve, to serve with purpose, to make a difference. That's a proclamation. Amen, brother. (laughs) It's embodied. It's moving. I'm there. It's actionable. And when I'm in that, I'm in a flow state. Mm -hmm. And and I have a, you know, over the years, it's kind of formed, but it goes off on tangents and I'm good with that. And so, you know, when I do it tonight, you know, because I do it before I go to bed and I do it in the morning, but when when I go to bed, I, you know, you will be part of my gratitude. Mm -hmm. Doing this show with you will be part of my gratitude. The impact that we get to make together, the difference we get to make together, the, 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 the platform you've given me to share with other people Mm -hmm. that I'm deeply grateful for that. So that's part of my practice too. So those are sort of some of the things. And then, you know, there's eating healthily and all those things that work for me. Uh, but And another thing is for me is just simply is walking. Walking by the ocean helps me a lot. My mm-hmm. wife will often say, if I'm stressed, she goes, why don't you go for a walk, babe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll be back. Well, you just described something that to me is very beautiful in that when I asked you about your practice, you told me about your life, your lifestyle, and that it is a lifestyle. Your, your lifestyle is a practice, and I think that's exactly what it should be. You know what? I never thought of saying it that way, but that, thank you, because that is actually it. When my practice is my life, mm-hmm. it's the way I live. Like, so one of my practices is to acknowledge people and recognize them. Absolutely. Right. Is that one of the practices? Yeah. Am I still an intense guy? Yeah. But I'm also intense in that my wife has like talked about this recently with this whole movement around me too and all that, which I'm supportive of. But at the same time, I'm cautious of because there's now trial by social media, mm-hmm. trial by accusation. Um, because one of the things for me is I'll be in the supermarket, which is literally across the street from me with my wife and the, the girl who's at the counter there. And I'll say, I'll say, Wow, you have magnificently beautiful eyes. And now, you know, I, I have to say, doesn't she, babe? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because I'm not going to think of some creepy old guy is hitting on her. Right. But I'm going to be intensely, and I've never had anybody go, you're a creepy old guy, or, you know, there's some kind of leeriness about it. It's because it's genuine. Yeah. Like the first thing I noticed about you is you have magnificent, you, Jared. Yeah. You have magnificent eyes, oh, wow. beautiful <laughs> eyes, beautiful eyelashes, but there's a light in your eyes that is so both calm and vibrant. That, that's mm-hmm. one of the first things I noticed about you that like 
pulled me in. I wanted to have a conversation with you because I believe your soul shines through your eyes. It's right there. So I have no, you know, I don't care if you're gay, if you're straight, if you're a man or a woman. It's like I see your magnificence and I will not repress that because it's socially not okay or because it's uh, not PC. Yeah. Bullshit. I think you're magnificent. I'll tell you. You want to work that out to be someone else? Well, yeah. that's shit, not mine. Yeah. My, my, it's not binary. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your comments too, by the way. Thank you. And I, yeah, I think that I, I'm very much of, of the same kind of mindset. I want to tell people when I notice something amazing, and I will sometimes say something like that to a lady at the, at the grocery store with my wife, and I'll, I'll you know, you, you make sure you don't look like the creepy old guy. But because I, I think how. What think about the impact that you make on someone's life in that moment, not to mention even your own. And like, I just gave that gift, a beautiful gift to someone. I didn't have to, I was just getting groceries. Uh, and, and you did that. And I think that's, that's a beautiful thing as well. One well, of the things I just want to, I want to give you an example of this because I think it's important. Mm-hmm. When people say, well, how do you do that? And I say, I remember I, I suffered with very dark depression and high levels of anxiety. And I remember somebody saying something to me at a particular moment that I didn't expect and it changed my world, Hmm. not for life, but for that moment, for a moment long enough to interrupt the suicidal thoughts that I was thinking. And so what I say to people is when they say, well, how do you do that? How do you just be that bold and say those things to people? And I say, what if I just save somebody's life? What if when you pay somebody a compliment, you interrupt their pattern enough that it saves their life? There's a, there's a guy online, I won't give his name, um, who I met when he was homeless. He's on Facebook, but he was homeless. And he reached out to me, and I don't have time to respond to everybody. I get a, Like you, I probably get a lot of people who want to reach out to me. But I, I, I responded to him. I didn't know he was homeless. I didn't know anything about him. And he said he'd like to meet with me, and and he lives in – he was living in Cooper. And I said, okay, I'll meet you for a cup of coffee. I can't always do that, but I did. And I saw that he was homeless. And he never asked me for anything. I put my hand in my pocket, and I gave him some money. And I said to – and I gave him a hug. And I told him he was beautiful, mm-hmm. and he was here for a reason. And that that reason is far bigger than his circumstances. You have no idea how many times he has written online that I saved his life. And he has now started several foundations, is in touch with people that I can't get in touch with. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get access to them. I'd love to have them on my show. I can't get access to them. He's gotten access to them. And he's changing people's lives because I bothered to tell him that who he is is far greater than his circumstances because I saw his magnificence. I don't tell you that to brag about how fucking cool I am. I'm not cool. I'm just doing what I'm here to do. I'm telling you because when you pay a compliment to someone, even if it's about their eyes or if it's about something other than something superficial, what if you're saving their life Hmm. and you don't know it? And you'll never know it. And this is important. I want everybody to get this. The impact you have, a lot of the work that I do, I say, the work I do, I'm an impact strategist. And the work that I do, I say to people is, it's about having impact on people whose names you will never know and who will never know your name. 
So there are people who will never who know him who will never know my name. Good. I don't care. What I care is that he got to have impact and he shifted their lives. So go out, pay a compliment, recognize, acknowledge, validate people. Because I'll tell you something, everybody's walking around fighting a fucking battle. Everybody has that internal shitty voice that tells them they're not good enough. Even people who you look at like Jared and me and think, oh, these guys have all their shit together. You know, yeah, I do have my poo in a pile. So does Jared, except when I don't. And when I don't and somebody reaches out to me, it transforms my life for that moment. Mm-hmm. Go do that for somebody else. Beautiful. All right. We're going to, we're going to wrap this up. I think I could talk to you forever, man. I I really appreciated this. And I want to leave with one kind of final question uh, to pose to you. We all have some sort of influence over people. Obviously I look at my role as a parent, as chief influencer. (laughs) Uh, I'm just an influence. I happen to be the biggest influence in my kids' lives at the moment. Um, So that drives me to, to be the best that I can, you know, to, because I recognize that they're going to spend a lot less time listening to my, my beautifully eloquent words and speeches and a lot more time watching how daddy handles a traffic jam (laughs) and things like that with that influence. And you obviously have quite a platform of influence and, and are, um, are impacting lives all over the world. What would you say is, is, is the thing that, uh, that you hope people experience from your influence more than anything else that that thing that you say i hope that my influence impacts people's lives in this way thank you for asking more than anything i hope that my influence impacts people's lives in reminding them that they're already whole they're already complete they're already perfect that their heart and soul is crying out for expression through their dreams that there is deep greatness within them and that they're here to fulfill that, to bring the disenfranchised parts of their soul back so they can do that for others. That's it. That's beautiful. Hey, in my family, we have, uh, we have one motto. We have, we have no rules other than don't touch the stove. Uh, but the, the, our, our motto is uh, just be love. It covers a lot of ground. And I, man, I, I, I know a lot about you and I follow you closely. Uh, but this has been our probably our, our most intimate conversation, and I really appreciate it. And you're a beautiful soul, brother. And I, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I want to thank you for being love as well. Jared, I, I tell you, man, I, you know I do a lot of interviews, and I, I enjoy it. I, I'm getting to a very good flow state doing it. But I really enjoyed this one. Oh, this thanks. was nice and meaty, and we got to some stuff that just doesn't normally show up on a podcast um and i want to acknowledge and recognize you for having the depth to be able to go there that is such a validation of your journey without sounding like the mutually the mutual appreciation society here for each other i just want to recognize you and i want to have your listeners recognize you that you took the time, the energy, the effort to not just interview me, but you, I know you did all this back research and all those kinds of things. I, mean, I don't think people realize how much goes into it that you've done. I want people to recognize that, recognize you. And please reach out to Jared and, and tell him you appreciate him, the effort and the time that he put in. Because this conversation, if it's had 
any impact on you is because it was facilitated by the time, energy, and effort of Jared and your depth. So thank you, sir. Mm. I am honored. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for being on the show, man. I wish you success, and uh, thank you so much for the love that you put out into the world. Thank you. Wow, I really enjoyed that. There were so many things about that interview that were different than so many that I've had before. And I appreciate them all. I, re- I appreciate Dove's authenticity and his high intensity, all of it. Uh, there's so much of that that I can relate to and all of it that I respect. I hope you'll check him out at uh, fullmontyleadership.com. Check out his book, Fierce Loyalty, and he's got a few other excellent ones as well, mostly on leadership. And he is qualified. He's got such an amazing repertoire of experiences and people whose lives he's invested in and so on. Amazing stories. Uh, He truly is a storyteller. Being a great storyteller, I think, uh, comes from a life of living great stories. And Dove has definitely done that. Thanks for hanging in there on this one. I know it was a longer one. I think it's the longest one I've ever done. And again, I feel like every second was worth it. Hope you did too. Thanks so much for holding a space for love and freedom with us today. If you appreciate this discussion, I hope you'll share it widely and rate and review us on iTunes. That's the best way to help us amplify our message. NEP Radio theme music is provided by Human Suits from their original soundtrack for the documentary Planetary. Check them out and download their music at humansuits.bandcamp.com. Until next time, I wish you peace on your journey. May you always align with love and let your life speak. Mitakuye Oyasu.